Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Trying to decide if I should share any of my thoughts from Sunday school class or not. One of the things in the men's class that um, was encouraging to me was the brother who um, kind of kept leaning into the question of how how can he um, how can he serve the servants um, how can he support and um, something that keeps running through my mind is lean into your strengths um, so there are a couple brothers that I know if I um, you know, leave them a four-minute voice message on WhatsApp, they're going to listen to it, and I'm going to get equal or greater length message back after they think through my question and thoughts. And um, and I need those brothers, those people who engage that way. But that doesn't mean that if if that's not your cup of tea, you learn how to brew it. Um there are other brothers here who I engage with different ways, and God uses that to uh, address needs in my life. And so um, I guess maybe the simpler way of saying it is use the gifts God gave you uh, in the way you, uh, you relate and, and support us, um, and God will bless it. And that's not to say you never step out of your comfort zone, but I think you know what I mean. And thank you to each one here. Um, I definitely do feel uh, well supported by our congregation here. Um, and I don't really have anything to compare that to, but I'm sure that the, uh, the alternative really is unpleasant. Today's message is titled, Asking God. If you could only ask God for two things in 2021, what would those two things be? If you could only ask God for two things in 2021, what would those two things be? Somebody asked me that the other day, um, and... Well, if, if you're taking notes or you have something to write with, I would, I would recommend you go ahead and write down your, your thoughts. Um, there's a lot of value in that kind of introspection. If you could only ask God for two things in 2021, what would those two things be? This morning we're going to look at a prayer in Scripture of a man who made a request of God for two things. You can go to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, and we are going to read the first nine verses of this chapter. Um, I was at a, well, part of a meeting um, I got sick and couldn't be there for all of it, 
but a, a meeting that was designed, uh, it was aimed directly at leaders, and this passage was was uh, used, and, and it really spoke to me, and God's really been working on me with it since. Here in Proverbs 30, we'll start at verse 1, the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. Surely I am more stupid or brutish than any man, and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So here we have a man asking God for two things, both in verse 8. The first is, remove falsehood and lies far from me. So we're going to think about falsehood, lies, and truth for a bit. And the plea of Agur's heart here seems to be deeper than just take lies away from me. Uh, you notice in verse 5, he just celebrated that every word of God is pure. Pure reveals that it is untainted, it is truth, the standard of truth and definition of truth. Every word of God is pure, and then he asks, he pleads, really, remove falsehood and lies far from me. I get, I get the sense of a man asking God to, to open his eyes to truth and to, to shove um, untruth as far out of his life as possible. Turn over to Psalm chapter 52. Psalm 52. I guess technically they're not chapters, they're just psalms. Psalm 52. This really started to um, challenge me on, on what I thought of truth. Psalm 52, we're going to start reading at verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. You shall likewise God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it, and in the presence of your saints I will wait on your name, for it is good. This psalm is the contemplation of David. 
when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Himelech. So, David says this about Doeg in this, in this passage. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Do you know what Doeg said? In 1 Samuel 22, 9 and 10, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahidab. Doeg spoke factual truth. What he said was fact. And yet, David decries that he loves lying rather than speaking righteousness. And so then I started to think that, well, it's not just enough for me to speak factual truth. It's not just enough to say, well, one plus one does equal two, and so therefore that's just what I say. There's something even deeper with truth. Because David did go to Ahimelech, receive provisions, and so there's something deeper to truth than just facts. Did you know it's possible to be sincere, passionate, genuine, and wrong? And we tend, we tend to give a pass to falsehood when it is bundled with one of those three things. In others and in ourselves. It is possible to be sincere, passionate, genuine, and wrong. If Nathan is deeply genuine in his belief that the moon is made of Swiss cheese, I can not only pretty easily move past his misguided notion, but admire his deep sincerity, even though it's been conclusively proven that the moon is made of mozzarella. But someone can be so sincere that we then just admire their sincerity and their genuineness even acknowledging that they're completely off base when it comes to the truth of God and who he is. And this is a truly dangerous hole for us to step into. Our admiration for the passion or the sincerity or the genuineness of a misguided person can start to break down our defenses against that underlying falsehood. When I think of passionately misguided, I think of Peter in the garden. Uh, you can turn to John chapter 18. John 18 we have Peter at the arrest of Jesus. I'll just go ahead and, and start reading at verse 1 of John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, there was, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to him, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, <clears throat> excuse me, And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, he drew back, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that at the saying that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, Of those whom you gave me I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Peter was ready to protect Jesus. And in that we see that Peter's vision of Messiah setting up an earthly kingdom, saving the Jews from the Romans, Peter's, Peter's vision of that hadn't been completely taken care of yet. He hadn't absorbed what Jesus had been drilling into him just shortly before this about how Jesus needed to physically suffer, that Jesus would go to the cross and die. Peter still had some misconceptions about uh, some untruths in, in his way of thinking of, of how Jesus and his kingdom was going to work. Peter drew that sword and swung it with passion. Or maybe zeal would be a better word. And I don't get the picture of him aiming for Malchus's ear. Um, I get the picture of, of Malchus ducking and turning his head and Peter only getting the ear. Peter was, he was passionate about what he saw was supposed to happen with Jesus on this earth. What are the swords of falsehood that we wield? Jesus was there to put things back together for Peter and for Malchus um, in that moment. But what happens when, when I wield a sword in falsehood? What are those falsehoods that I, that I can allow to grow? Because there are a lot of passionate people saying a lot of not quite true things. Maybe one of those falsehoods is that we will have peace and prosperity in life. We have the promise of peace in our hearts and that what we do for God will prosper. Maybe the falsehood is that I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jesus said, we delay down our lives, we serve him as bondservants, and the various trials will come in our lives. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Yet I can pretty easily think that I really do have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. After all, I learned in school that I, uh, I have that right from God himself. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Big lies are usually easier to spot, and distortions are harder to pick up. At that same meeting, we were told that as leaders, we need people who are willing and able to chide us even more than we used to need them. Uh, the 
point was made that all of us as Christians need people who are able and willing to chide us to help scrub those falsehoods away. And that as leaders, we are even uh, more needful of it. He was speaking to to a group of leaders, and, and, and the greater point was that if we're lovers of truth, we need to be chided when we adopt or embrace anything other than truth. Um, and that as a leader, if, if we don't have that, we're even more likely to spread that falsehood. And I think of Peter again and how he was chided by Paul in Galatians 2. In Galatians 2, we read about Paul saying that I showed up and these people were, were not following God's way. And even Peter was taken up in it and I had to, to show them uh, the truth from God. And I doubt Peter enjoyed that. Having Paul come in and chide him for his uh, allowing of falsehood, I'm, I'm quite sure Peter didn't enjoy it. But I'm pretty confident Peter valued it. There is an unpleasantness that sometimes comes with learning that we're wrong. But there's a balm in gaining truth and driving away falsehood when we actually have eyes and a heart for truth. So yes, um, the removal of the falsehood is often painful, um, especially when it comes comes when, with someone being uh, loving and willing to, to chide. But there, there is, a, there is a, a soothing that comes from the truth itself. I've been mostly trying to avoid the news and getting all wrapped up in current events. Um, I don't think it's been very healthy for me for the last year, four years, eight years, however many years. Um, Keith preached the other evening about the fallacy that we can fall into of thinking that if we've got the correct form, we're okay. And that, that resonated with um, with some falsehoods that God was already working on rooting out of, of my way of thinking. I think maybe um, a sort of falsehood that I've, I've wielded some has been well, it's been a uh, It's it's tied right into that with with the idea that if we if we fall into the correct or, or, or if we squeeze ourselves into the correct form we're okay, and then looking at that broader level, um, I think of American conservatism, and and there can be just do I really think that if if laws are made to make everybody stop doing bad things that suddenly God is pleased? Is, is God's will satisfied just by outlawing a bunch of things that people shouldn't do? Well, God's, God's desire goes so much deeper than that. And, and I think of um, 
you know, I've had some really good conversations with um, with uh, LDS missionaries. Or uh, Nathan would have a really good relationship with uh, with a Mormon man over in in his area, and and we can look at the fact that they're they're holding to a number of truths. They're avoiding a number of certain things that should be avoided. And we can we can even admire sometimes the the dedication and passion and sincerity with which um, some of these people are 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 doing what looks like good things. And then we miss the falsehoods of some of these things that are tacked on to that religion. And and I'm not here trying to no, okay. See, there's a part of me that's uncomfortable even talking about about the falsehoods of, of another religion and saying Mormonism is wrong. I'm sorry, Mormonism is wrong. That doesn't make the people who do it bad people. It makes them, it just means they're living a lie. And yet, you know, they're, uh, they're holding to um, true marriage and they're, they're avoiding um, abortion and, you know, all these things, you know, everything's right, right? And they're passionate and sincere and lost. We dare not allow the falsehood that as long as, as long as the form is right, everything is okay. Truth is all-encompassing. When, when we encounter truth, there is not a part of us it doesn't touch. English is lovely. The, the more straightforward way, it touches every part of us. When we encounter truth, it touches every part of us. A phrase that um, I ended up jotting in my notebook the other day and has just come back to me over and over again is truth realized because of the the, the the double meaning there. When I realize the truth, then it becomes real and 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 then my actions, my very life becomes truth realized. Jesus in John seventeen seventeen Praying to the Father said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Here's a thought experiment for you. What if the Bible was written based on what you believe? What if the Bible was written based on what you believe? Or, what if the Bible was written based on how you live? If you start looking at multiple translations, you can really start to uh, wonder about some of the gaps between them and how they can be so different. I'm afraid that a Bible written based on what we believe or a Bible written based on what we live would look scarily different than the Bible that we have here. How similar would those Bibles be to the truth, the inspired word of God?
the author Jeff Bethke said, we run to the same filth even though it hurt us yesterday and say, come on, please satisfy me today. He was writing more to the seeker, but that rings a little too true to my experience. Truth is all-encompassing. When we encounter truth, there is not a part of us it doesn't touch. What is truth? Thy word is truth, Jesus said. The second thing Agur prayed for here in uh, Proverbs 30 is, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. The first part of that is easier to pray than the second. Of course we don't want poverty, and we will uh, ask to avoid it. Though our reason is much less sound than Agur's, I think. Notice his concern with poverty. In verse 9 of Proverbs 30, his Uh, his underlying concern is that he doesn't want to bring a bad mark against God's reputation. We may struggle to pray it with the same dedication and commendable heart that Agur did, but I think we can pretty easily pray, keep me from poverty. But can you truly get on your knees and pray, God, keep me from getting rich. God, keep me from riches. I can do that very easily if I get to define riches and richness. Now, I'm not going to go down the road of if you make X amount of money in a year, you are in the top N percent of wealthiest people in the world and all those discussions we could have. Um, I can skip right past all the mess of $1,000 in the U.S. is entirely different than $1,000 in Venezuela and whether you compare the buying power of your income with how much food you can buy, or housing costs, and we can really get dragged down and, well, truly, how how rich am I? Um, am I wealthy? That stuff does fascinate me, um, and I think there can be value in processing through some of those questions, but not right now. Right now, we can simplify it this way. Remember, the request of the prayer is, give me neither poverty nor riches. There are two definitions of rich we consider as we start evaluating. One, having abundance, Two, well supplied. You see, probably none of you here would say you want to be wealthy in the fullest material sense of the word. And I don't mean that as you do well about hiding that motivation. Um, I mean, I think that you all probably do reasonably well about squelching that temptation. But Agur says he wants to avoid the temptation to be full and forget God. That doesn't take exorbitance or extravagance. What he's praying against is not just keep me from extravagance, God. Because he says his fear is is that temptation to be full and forget God. That doesn't take extravagance and riches. Simple abundance can do that. Simple abundance can start to feed that problem. And I'm not saying 
that you're living in sin if your flour and oatmeal containers aren't empty the day before payday. Um, I am saying that you know the truth of your heart. If you quiet down and listen instead of making rationalizations for what you do and why you do it, you know whether you really are desiring abundance, desiring to be reasonably well supplied. That's not the heart we see in Agar here. We spent a lot of time considering truth. One of the biggest lies in the world is, I'll be satisfied if I have just a little more. Can I, will I, really pray, keep me from poverty and riches? Or in that deepest locker in my heart where I don't open up to anyone, am I modifying that prayer to keep me from poverty and give me only a smallish abundance? That same author, uh, Jeff Bethke, said, rather than demoting ourselves to slaves, we promote ourselves to the place of God. We are king. We make the rules. And what we do is what defines us. What forms your identity? I was recently told, everything I do in my life is in support of my identity. And I argued with it, and then eventually uh, the truth of it won out. Everything I do in my life is in support of my identity. There is nothing in my life that avoids being impacted by my identity might be a, a, an easier way to start to believe it. When I go to bed and wake up, in the end is rooted in my identity. What I do for a living, what I'm not willing to do for a living, what I drive, what I won't drive. Any question at some point, the roots keep going down deeper and deeper through the, the processing tree of why I do what I do. And it is all defined by my identity. It is all impacted or affected by. So at the core of these requests that God keep us from falsehood and lead us in and to truth, that he keep us from poverty and riches. Under all of that, we are asking him really to remind us and show us the truth of who we really are. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. We will read verses 9 and 10. Everything in your life is in support of your identity. Let's figure out who we are. 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. If I'm finding my stability or truth anywhere but God and in the realization that I am his, I am his utterly, I am his completely, I am his totally, 
If I'm finding my stability or my truth anywhere but that, I'm living in falsehood. And I'll just bounce around between poverty and riches. Or find some groove somewhere in between there. If my stability, my truth, comes from anywhere but God, and that realization that I am his, I am living in falsehood, and like Agur, I need to ask God's help to turn around. Can we have a song, please? <laughs>